Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for all those gathered together today uh, to worship you and to bring you their praise and thanks. We pray as we take a look at your word that you would open our ears and open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning, that we would take it all to heart and make it a real part of our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. According to an investment website, here are the biggest investments that were missed out on, and different people are, I'm sure, kicking themselves for passing on them. The founder of Atari, a man named Nolan Bushman, passed on an opportunity that was presented to him to take a mere $50,000 and invest it as seed money in a fledgling computer company in the 1970s called Apple. Maybe some of you heard of it. He passed on it. If, B if Bushman had taken that opportunity, he would own now a full third of a company now worth $850 billion and well on its way to become the first company to achieve the worth of $1 trillion. But he passed on it. After the stock market crash of 1929, most people were understandably fearful of investing in the stock market again. However, somebody did the math, and if you had $1,000 laying around in 1932 and invested, invested it in the stock market then, that initial $1,000 would be worth $5 million today. If you just invested it in 1932 and left it there, you'd have $5 million today. If you had invested in a thousand bitcoins in 2011, when it was only five cents a bitcoin, so we're talking $50, a $50 investment in bitcoin in 2011, you would have $7 million today. If you had cashed out those thousand bitcoins when they hit an all-time high in 2017, you'd have a cool $20 million today. Well, this one's my favorite. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, a craze called e-squatting was very popular. Anyone, this is what would happen, anyone with any technological skill and intelligence could get in on the game. And as the internet was still brand new, anyone could scoop up generic sounding web domains and sit on them until a company really, really wanted it and would pay through the nose to get it. Anybody could do this. For instance, toys.com was sold in 2009 for $5.1 million. Hotels.com, I had heard of that one. Hotels.com, you see it uh, on TV all the time. Was sold in 2001 for $11 million. Some guy just bought this up in the late 80s and sat on it for 30 years. VacationRentals.com was sold in 2007 for $35 million, and the one that wins the record here is Insurance.com, and that was sold in 2010 for a whopping $35.6 million. <laughs> These guys paid maybe $15 a year for 30 years, just sitting on it, not doing anything with it, until uh, a company really, really wanted it and came out with millions and millions of dollars just for sitting on it for 30 years. <laughs> I bet some of you are kicking yourselves for that you missed out on that craze called e-squatting. 
In the parable we're, talking, uh, we're taking a look at today, there's a group of people who not only are missing out on the greatest and best opportunity of all time, but they're consciously rejecting it. And we'll see what it will cost them and what that all means for us. Let's see how Jesus sets up what's going here. In verse 33, we read this. If you brought your Bible with you, turn to Matthew 21, verse 33. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. And if you, if you don't want to take a Bible from the pew in front of you, I'm sure you brought a smartphone with you. Uh, you can look it up on whatever Bible app you like using. Uh, but Matthew 21, verse 33, we read this. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, I just want to give a little bit of a background here. According to one biblical scholar, a lot of the Roman Empire, which Palestine was a part of, was made up of wealthy landowners who would then lease their vineyard or orchard or garden land to what were called tenant farmers. These tenant farmers were usually peasants who would tend to the land and the produce that it would yield. Whatever the land yielded as crops, the landowner would usually take 25% of whatever the crops that were grown were as his profit, and the other 75% would go to the farmers. So it was a legitimate way for peasants who didn't own their own land to still make a living for their families. They still got 75% of whatever crops they grew. In the ancient world, some landowners would be a little benevolent towards the peasants renting the land from him in order to derive honor from the rest of society. But as one biblical scholar noted, most did not have much incentive to do so, to be nice towards their uh, tenant farmers. In fact, it's reported in the Roman Empire that some landowners even hired assassins. They hired hitmen to deal with unruly tenants. And they were within their legal right to do that. In other words, the landowners were usually the ones who would be abusive towards their tenants. Now keep that information of how things usually were between landowners and their tenants in the ancient world as we go through this parable. The landowners held all the power. They're the ones who were able to do whatever they wanted to do. What you may notice too, as one biblical scholar pointed out, is that this landowner went through great pains and a lot of money to make this piece of land as profitable as it could be. Not only for him, but for his tenant farmers. The more profitable this land was, in general, not only would he make more profit, but the tenant farmers would also make more profit from it. He didn't just rent an empty, land of, uh, empty piece of land out to these farmers and tell them to do all the work in getting everything set up and say, have fun, I'll be back in a year to collect my 25%. No, he prepares everything. He builds everything up. He sinks a ton of money into this piece of land to make it as profitable as it possibly could be. Either he or others he hires plants the grape seeds, builds a wall around this whole place, to keep out the animals and to deter thieves, then even builds a tower for the tenant farmers to take turns keeping watch throughout the day and night to make sure no one is destroying anything or stealing anything. This landowner even builds his own wine press 
on this property so that the tenant farmers can squeeze out the juice from the grapes and make the wine that they could then sell and provide for their families with, and they wouldn't even have to leave that piece of land. Everything could happen in one place. Again, this landowner has already done all the preparation and all this work and all this investment to make the tenant farmers experience tending the grapes and turning those grapes into sellable wine as profitable of one as possible. He's invested a lot into this business venture, a lot, and is confident in his hope for the best. Now, who is Jesus directly giving this parable to? The, the, right, you're on the right track. Just like with last week's parable, it's to the chief priests. We're in the same exact place we were last week. Jesus just starts another parable again as soon as he's done with the parable we talked about last week. So again, the setting for this, where Jesus is when he's telling the story, is he's in the temple. And he's teaching a group of people who are sitting at his feet. And all of a sudden he gets interrupted by the chief priests with this question that they try to trip him up with. And he says, well, if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours. Tells the parable we looked at last week and then immediately flows into the parable we're talking about today. So the setting is the same exact setting. So this parable is to the same exact people. It's directed to the chief priests who interrupt Jesus while he's teaching a group of people in the temple. So even though this parable, too, is directed at the chief priests, that's the primary audience, that's who he's getting at, but a bunch of people who are already gathered around Jesus, who are listening to his teaching, would be overhearing everything as well. This will be important, as we'll see once we get to the end. Now, what you may notice about how Jesus opens this story is that depending on your version or translation of the Bible, most of 30, verse 33 is written out how? Look at it. How is verse 33 written out? It's written out all in caps, right? Depending on your version or translation, it's written out all in caps. Now, that means that Jesus is referencing an Old Testament verse here. That will also be very important to the understanding of this parable. The Old Testament reference that Jesus makes is from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. And this prophecy of judgment in Isaiah against Israel for its continual disobedience, Isaiah describes God's relationship with Israel, and he describes it as this. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choices fine. This is starting to sound a little familiar, isn't it? And he built a tower in the middle of it. And he also hewed out a wine vat, a wine press in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Now that is the Old Testament passage that Jesus is referencing here when he, when he, when he starts, uh, when he uh, when he says in uh, verse 33. Jesus takes that well-known passage in the Jewish scriptures and makes a direct reference to it to start out his parable. He makes a, a direct reference to this. Just as in Isaiah 5, the landowner who plants a vineyard is God. And the vineyard represents Israel. That's what the prophecy in Isaiah is talking about. 
So just as in Isaiah 5, the landowner is God and the vineyard represents Israel, Jesus is taking this directly and using it for his parable. Jesus is using the exact same symbolism for his parable in this, in, in this chapter we're looking at. In this parable, once again, God is the landowner and the vineyard is Israel. Any of Jesus' Jewish listeners would have gotten that reference immediately because they would have understood this prophecy in Isaiah. So Jesus takes that immediate recognition of the already founded symbolism by his listeners as a springboard for the rest of his parable. He doesn't need to explain the beginning part because they already know it, because they already know this prophecy. The landowner does all the work. God does all the work to invest in the profitability of this vineyard. And then in this parable, the landowner moves to another country. Now this isn't all that out of the ordinary. For most landowners in this time period didn't really live near their rented out land and usually had little contact with their tenant farmers. Finally, the time came for the grape harvest. We think everything's going well. The, the, everything's planted. He hires these tenant farmers. He enters into a contract with them. They go to work in the vineyard. And now we come to the harvest time. This long-awaited time that the landowner had put all this investment towards. Verse 34. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the, vin- to the uh, vine growers to produce his produce. Now these men, as you read in the NASB, these men are not slaves as translated in the NASB who had no human rights and which the practice of the enslavement of people made in the image of God is repeatedly denounced in scripture. I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea here. What these men were are properly understood as bond servants. They're not people who had no rights here. These are bond servants who owed money, couldn't pay for it, and so worked for the one they owed money to for a set period of time after which they were to go free with their debt erased. That's a much different picture than what we could read into this. These men that were sent to go collect that payment, that 25% payment from these tenant farmers are bond servants. This landowner apparently had some men who owned it, owed him money and were working for him. So he sent these servants to simply go and collect what was in the lease contract and was logically and rightfully his. There was no surprise here. Everybody knew what was in this lease contract. In the real world, When these tenant farmers agreed to tend this landowner's vineyard, they entered into a contract with him that he would get his 25% of the profit at the time of the harvest. There was nothing special about this arrangement. There was nothing out of the ordinary. It was boilerplate. It was run of the mill. It was simply like every other lease agreement. There was nothing surprising about it, neither to the landowner uh, nor to the tenant farmers. Logically, naturally, at the harvest time, the tenant farmers were to set aside 25% of the harvest to go to the landowner. That's just the way it was. You planned on it. And remember from before, the landowner had every legal right to enforce the contract and do it however he wanted to. Like I referenced before, there were some landowners who we'd even kill 
any tenant farmers who caused trouble, much less not pay what they owed to him in that contract. But for some reason, these tenant farmers in Jesus' story thought they could get away with not paying what was in the contract they legally agreed to pay the landowner. And they tried to get away with it in such a drastic and wicked way. These bond servants, who just naturally assumed they were arriving, collecting the payment, and returning back to the landowner, ended up becoming the victims of treacherous violence in verse 35. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. One was beaten up, another was stoned to death or not, I'm not sure, but the very basic fact that tenant farmers threw massive stones at him to begin with is horrible and then outright murdered the third in cold blood. All because they didn't want to pay what they legally owed to this landowner. We can presume that at least the one who had been beaten up returned to the landowner with the news of what happened. Now in the real world, imagine if that happened today. I mean, it's not the same context, but imagine if that happened in the real world. The landowner, like any one of us, would have been irate, wouldn't you? If you found out what happened to your servants you just sent to collect your payment, he would have legally crushed those farmer tenants with no remorse whatsoever. He might have even handled it himself by sending a hitman to kill all of them. The point is that as soon as that first incident happened in the real world, those tenant farmers should have and would have been destroyed immediately for what they did. That should have been the end of the story, right there. What happens next in Jesus' parable would have simply been shocking and unbelievable for Jesus' listeners to hear. Verse 36. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. This giving of the benefit of the doubt by this landowner to those tenant farmers out of his benevolence towards them would have caught his listeners completely off guard. They would have been like, say what? He did what again? That just does not make any sense. At the very least, as one biblical scholar noted, Jesus' listeners would have thought the landowner tremendously naive. This guy has no clue what he's doing. Why would he send another group? But the landowner sends an even bigger group of servants to give those tenant farmers another chance to pay up. At the very least, perhaps the landowner thought that the bigger group of servants could protect one another from the tenants. But what happens when they arrive? The exact same thing. The tenant farmers beat up some, stone others, and even kill others. Now that, 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 that should have been it right then and there. That would and should have been it for those tenant farmers. Pfft, just wiped off the face of the earth right then and there. That should have brought the hammer down by the landowner. Not that there was any to begin with, but now there's absolutely no excuse those tenant farmers could give for why they did what they did. Well, we killed the first group 
sorry. But then we went ahead and killed the second group. Please don't punish us. There's no excuse that they could give now. In the real world, that landowner would have come at them with the full force of his wrath. Jesus' listeners probably even thought that was going to be what came next in the story. Surely that was what was coming next. Nope. Not even close. Verse 37. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. The landowner gives those evil tenants one last chance to attempt to make things right. So he sends his son as his direct representative to collect the payment. The reasoning was, surely if those tenant farmers had half a brain, they wouldn't dare lay a finger on my direct representative, my son. They should certainly know that they would be wiped off the face of the earth if they even tried giving him the slightest amount of trouble at this point. So off the landowner's son went. Jesus' listeners at this point are probably thinking, we already know what's going to happen here. The son goes, and because he's the son, the tenant farmers profusely apologize and try to make things right and obviously give the son the contractual 25% profit and maybe even pat it a little bit more to to assuage his anger. Some of Jesus' listeners may have even started packing up like sports fans at a game when the score is a blowout and they already know who's obviously going to win, and so they want to get out of the stadium before the parking lots get jammed. That won't be a thing at sports games anytime soon. <laughs> Parking lots being jammed. But when Jesus shocks them with some, then Jesus shocks them with something nobody there except for Jesus saw coming. Verses 38 through 39. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now there are are a couple of shocking elements to what happened here. The first one is the obvious element of of the tenant farmers having the audacity to kill the landowner's son. The second one is that anyone listening to Jesus' story would have scoffed at the tenant farmer's stupidity at this point. Simply killing the landowner's son, and even us today in 21st century America, if we really stopped and thought about it, we would think, yeah, that doesn't make any earthly sense. Simply killing the landowner's son did not give them the right to seize the land for themselves. That wasn't a thing. That didn't happen. Those tenant farmers could and would never have the deed to that land, no matter what they did to that son. Upon finding out what happened, which he obviously would, the landowner, even though he lost his heir, could very easily amend his will, and it certainly would not include those evil tenant farmers. And if the landowner died before he could amend his will, that land would still not go to the tenant farmers. It would be seized by the Roman Empire. There was no way those tenant farmers were ever getting that land, no matter what they thought they could do to the sun. So for those tenant farmers to even think that them 
killing the landowner's son automatically meant that they just owned that land revealed not only how evil they were, but just how plain stupid they were. As how many rabbis of Jesus' time would teach, Jesus ends this parable with a question, verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? After all that happened, it's a question with an obvious answer. They, who's they? Again, chief priests, right? Chief priests say to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. I bet the chief priests were just chomping at the bit to end the story their way with those tenant farmers getting everything they deserved and the landowner finally getting the profit that he deserved. They were just waiting. They were waiting for that question. Ooh, 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 I know the answer. They were, just, they were ready to throw that out there. And there's something pretty funny about that. Jesus knew without a doubt that they were going to respond that way. He set it up perfectly for them to respond that way. For them to be so chomping at the bit that they could not help themselves throwing out this answer as soon as they possibly could. Maybe even before he was done with the question. After all, we as human beings just naturally, it's in our DNA. We just naturally want due justice to be served in whatever capacity or situation it is. As one biblical scholar pointed out, rabbis would often ask a rhetorical question that when answered, this is the point, they would, the whole point of them asking this rhetorical question is that when answered, it was supposed to reveal a truth about the one answering the question. See how clever they were? How they turned that around? In this case, it's the chief priests. I wonder if they fully understood what Jesus was saying to them about them at that time. We know from verse 45 that they, along with the Pharisees, understood at some point that Jesus was referring to them as the wicked tenant farmers. And here's why. Jesus, again, knowing that that was just how the chief priests were going to answer, has his explanatory response ready. He's got it locked and loaded. Verses 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. The chief priests, just like with last week's parable, have been warned very clearly once again, God is the landowner in this parable. Israel is the vineyard. The tenant farmers are the religious leaders throughout the history of Israel. They were entrusted the vineyard of Israel to tend and to take care of and to make profitable for God with the prophet being a righteous nation. 
But when God sent his prophets to collect on that righteousness and to warn the tenant religious leaders when there wasn't any righteousness to collect from the nation, what did the religious leaders do? They beat up, they stoned, and they killed them. God gave them several chances, too, just like with that landowner in the parable. But the tenant religious leaders continually abused, tortured, and killed those prophets. So, God sent his son, his direct representative, and the heir of his inheritance to take what was his own, the vineyard of Israel. And what does Jesus prophetically reveal to the religious leaders at that point, namely the chief priests and the Pharisees, that they would do to the son and heir. Kill him too. And in that way, those religious leaders would not only pass up on the greatest and best investment in the history of the world, but they would consciously reject it. The stone that the builders initially rejected picked it up, took one look at it, and threw it away, and thought it was garbage and worthless, would become the most important stone in a building. The stone that would be the foundation for everything in that building, the cornerstone. The cornerstone, as Jesus' contemporaries would understand it, was the initial stone set in the ground for a building's foundation. It was the first one set in the ground for the building's foundation. All the other stones of that foundation and of that building would be set in direct connection to the position of that initial foundational cornerstone. You can see here, this is a more modern picture. You see there the guy in the top right corner is wearing jeans and boots, so it's not, not from the first century. But it gives you an idea here that uh, you, uh, you probably can't see it, but there's a, there are a couple of lines here that go across that they line these stones up with. And this one right here, that's the cornerstone. That's the first one they set right there. And all these other stones are set up in line with this stone. But that is the most important stone right there. Everything else in this building's foundation is going to be directly related to this stone right there in the foundation. Now again, depending on your translation, verse 42 may be written all in caps. This time, Jesus is referencing Psalm 118, where as one biblical scholar pointed out, David is writing about a cornerstone, but the cornerstone of a certain building. Anybody want to take a guess at what that building is in David's time that he's talking about? The temple. He's talking about the cornerstone of the temple, the house of God. So by Jesus making this reference, Jesus is referring to himself as the cornerstone. Not just of, the cornerstone in, uh, of a cornerstone in general, but the foundational stone in referencing what David wrote in Psalms of the temple. The foundational stone, the cornerstone of the temple. But not the temple he was standing in at that moment. That temple was the one that Herod the Great had built. The same guy who tried killing Jesus when he was a baby and ended up destroying many innocent lives in the process. That's not the temple Jesus was referring to here. So, what temple is Jesus referring to here? Well, the exact same one 
as when he would say later on, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. He's referring to himself. He's referring to his body. And all those who would put their faith in him for their salvation would make up his church or the body of Christ. After all, Jesus is the one and only foundation of the church. There is no other foundation. The Apostle Peter, who is no doubt there with Jesus when he's telling this parable, will describe the church as the living temple of Jesus. He says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. And he's pulling out the exact same language that Jesus is saying right here in this experience. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. Jesus being the cornerstone. The tenant religious leaders of Jesus' day were supposed to be fellow profiteers of the righteousness and therefore blessing of the vineyard of Israel. But what did they do? They forfeited that and they rejected and killed the son who was sent to make everything right. And because of that, as Jesus says in verse 43, the blessing of righteousness has been stripped from them and will be given to another group of people. A nation, in fact. At some point in the future, that nation will be Israel when they finally put all their faith in Jesus as their Messiah, but it will also be to those added to the family of faith. Thank God, us Gentiles, who also put our faith in Jesus as our Savior and King. Jesus as the cornerstone of the foundation of his temple of faith would be two things to those who refuse to accept him for who he truly is. As verse 44 says, it will both be a tripping hazard that will shatter those who trip over it, and if that wasn't enough, it will crush into dust those it falls on. It's pretty graphic, isn't it? In other words, there will be people, in this context, the religious leaders who refuse to believe in Jesus, who will continually trip over Jesus and will ultimately be crushed to dust in judgment for the fact they never gave up their sin and asked him for forgiveness of it. And throughout the past 2,000 years, including up to and including right now, there have been people who have continually tripped over Jesus and repeatedly refused to believe in him and have paid the payment that they deserved, just like with the tenant farmers. They've been cast out of the vineyard of the world and thrown into e eternal judgment and punishment. But for those who believe in Jesus as their savior from their sin and have made them the king of their lives, he is their chief cornerstone. He is our foundation. That's it. We have no other foundation to stand on. We are his temple, both as a church and as individuals. Whereas Peter referred to the church as Jesus' temple, as we bring him our praise and worship, including right now, the Apostle Paul referred to each of us as individuals, as followers of Jesus, as temples of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
just as the son in this parable, or Jesus, was the representative of the land-owning Father God, the Holy Spirit is the representative of both the Son and the Father. And Scripture tells us that that representative, that Holy Spirit, indwells us or makes a home within us. And as such, Paul says, don't you realize, don't you think about it ever? Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God, you don't belong to yourself. It's not your body, your choice, no matter what context you're talking about. It's not your body. You are not your own. You don't belong to yourself anymore. God bought you with an impossibly high price, the blood of his own son. And so we're all called to, so you must, must honor God with your body. It's not an option. It's not whether or not I feel like it on any given day. It's must. Don't reject Jesus as the cornerstone of the temple in any area of your life, or else you'll just continually trip over him. He's not going away. He's going to keep being there for you to trip over. And someday... If you're here or watching online later and you've never made Jesus your foundation by repenting of your sin and asking him for forgiveness, you will have to pay the price of judgment that awaits all who reject him. And just as the church together as Jesus' temple was built to worship him and honor him, we as individuals have been built and are being built into the temple of the Holy Spirit by the Holy Spirit to worship God with the way we live our lives in every area of our lives. Much of life is a battle between thinking we belong to ourselves and bringing ourselves in line with the truth that we are really gods. That's most of life's battles, isn't it? Jesus paid the impossibly high price for us through his death and resurrection. So, we are not our own anymore. You can't have it both ways. It doesn't work that way. We can't have Jesus and all the spiritual blessing that comes with having a growing relationship with him and hold something back from him and say, I love everything you've given to me, Jesus, but this you're not having. You're just not taking. We can't follow Jesus and think our bodies and our lives are our own to do with as we please and make self-centered decisions for that's not how it works. This affects everything about us and everything we do. This is, I'm not talking about the big ticket sins. I'm not talking about those. This affects everything about us and everything we do. We can't take what's supposed to be Jesus' temple and fill it with garbage and poison. We can't say what I own and my money is my own to deal to do with. I can even use it to buy things I know that aren't pleasing to God. As Paul was very clear about in his letter to the church in Corinth, 
We can't take the bodies Jesus has died to redeem and then do things with them that are blatantly against his standard for sexuality. We can't flood our minds with fear and anxiety over what's going on in the world and allow those things to dictate what we do. Let me reiterate again, brothers and sisters, we have not been given a spirit of fear. We have been given a spirit of love and of power and of a what? Sound mind to think through things clearly and not just be trapped and, and, and live our lives burdened and chained up by fear and anxiety even over things that are going on in the world in our country right now. We have been given a gift, brothers and sisters. We have been given a gift of Jesus as our king. And that has nothing to do with what goes on in the world or in our country. He is the one who is overall. He is the one who has a plan. We can trust him with that plan. How many times does Jesus say over and over in the Gospels, therefore, do not be afraid. Trust God with everything. Trust your Father with everything. It doesn't matter what the context is. It doesn't matter what the situation is. Trust your Father with everything. We can't flood our minds and our nervous systems with fear and anxiety because that's not helpful for the kingdom. We can't overwhelm our bodies with constant stress over things that ultimately do not matter in the light of eternity. Our bodies and our lives are not our own anymore. Each of us are temples of the Holy Spirit. That's what we are. Each of us are temples of the Holy Spirit built upon the cornerstone and foundation of Jesus Christ. And when we gather together to worship as a church, God builds the, those individual temples into a collective temple of praise built from people from all backgrounds and ethnicities and races and languages and political leanings and pasts. That's the beauty of Jesus' temple of the church because he and only he is the chief cornerstone. Nothing else matters. As God grows and changes our individual temples, he builds us together as one temple to glorify him. So if there's some cleaning up that needs to be done, if there's some cleanup that needs to happen in our individual temples, we've got to get out the broom and the dustpan and do some cleanup in our individual temples, let us do that cleanup. Let's not let it go anymore. Let's not let it build up anymore. If there's some repair work that needs to be done, let us do the prep work for God to make those repairs by getting that work area spotless and say, all right, God, it's here. It's ready for you to do what you want to do with it. Come repair it. Come fix it. Let us see our bodies and our lives exactly for what they are. It's not my words. It's what God's word says very clearly, very, very clearly. Let us see our bodies and our lives exactly for what they are. What Jesus gave his life to buy and to start making his own. 
And as we do what cleanup we need to do and prepare our individual temples for God to grow and build on and change, and as we gather together for God to do the same with us as his church, what's going to happen? God will do powerful things through his buildings. Let us present to God as promising of buildings as possible for him to work with and do incredibly powerful works in our community and this local body of the chief cornerstone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very powerful and shocking parable and what it teaches to us even today, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit with you as our chief cornerstone. And Lord, I pray that that would be our only foundation. I pray that if we're trying to build upon anything else, that you would remove that. You would destroy it so that our only foundation is you as our chief cornerstone. Lord, I pray that if there's any cleanup that needs to be done, if there's any repair work that needs to be done, I pray that we would do the cleanup and we would do the prep work for you to make those repairs. Lord, I pray that we would walk out these doors, changed people, not the same people as we walked in these doors as, but people more in line with your will and what you want for our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name.